I kind of began the morning by um, talking a little bit about the uh, elephant in the room over here. Um, and that, that is a, a phrase that we use when there's something that is kind of, uh, everyone kind of knows it's there, but no one's really talked about it yet, right? And, and a lot of times when we talk about the elephant in the room being addressed, it's something that um, you don't really want <laughs> to talk about either. It's something that is not a comfortable conversation. And so we ignore it, we skip over it, and uh, I think in, in Christian circles, the, the elephant in the room tends to, be, tends to be sin. Because let's be honest, like, um, you know that you sin. I know that I sin. I know that you sin. You know that I sin. Okay? If we believe the Bible, we know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We, we know this. Everyone knows it. But we're not talking about it a whole lot. Not in specifics anyway. Maybe like the way I just did, where it's like, oh yeah, we're all sinners, but we don't talk a whole lot about this because it's uncomfortable. We all know it's there, but it's kind of beneath the surface a lot of the time. Even it's kind of like when you walk by someone, how are you doing? Oh, good. Well, I just had a horrible morning, but I just told that guy that I'm doing good. Okay, we keep these things. There are certain things we keep beneath the surface, and sin is typically one of those things. We'll say, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I just screamed at my kids this morning, you know, like, I left before they woke up, so that wasn't true for me this morning. But there are times where, you know, there's just this reality that sin's there, but we're, we don't really love talking about it. And if, um, if sin is the elephant in the room, then um, sexual sin is maybe the pink elephant in the room, where it's even more uncomfortable. Things are even more uncomfortable to talk about, and yet that's a, a thread we see throughout the Scriptures. Uh, I know Don mentioned the, the story of Noah and um, God hanging his bow in the clouds. You know, they come off the ark. It's a wonderful picture until um, you get to the next story and what happens after, after Noah has uh, planted a vineyard and uh, has drunk plentifully from the fruit of his vineyard. There's this shameful thing that happens there, this shameful sexual occurrence that happens in that situation. You fast forward a little bit more to Abraham's nephew Lot who goes with him into into the land of Canaan and Lot and his daughters escape from Sodom and Gomorrah. Mrs. Lot almost makes it. She gets out of the city but pillar of salt, you know. Uh, and so there's this they they make it out. Maybe that's the part of the story we typically focus on, but we don't always talk about uh, the shameful thing that happens after that that leads to the nations of the Ammonites and the Moabites who ends up giving the nation of Israel a whole lot of trouble moving forward. Judah and Tamar. Judah, you know, the, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Judah must be a great guy. His name even means praise the Lord. Tamar probably didn't think he was such a great guy. In fact, we actually have a, we have a kid's Bible. It's called The Greatest Story. It's a super good one. I love it. Uh, but it, in there, it talks about these people that are in the line of Jesus. And, and um, he says, and Judah did such dumb stuff, we don't even want to talk about it. And isn't that the truth? We don't want to talk about it. We want to gloss over this stuff. We want to ignore it. And yet, it's all over the place. I mean, I haven't even made it out of the book of Genesis yet. We have, you get into Judges. You get into the time of the kings. 
You listen to the way that the prophets talk about the way that Israel is committing adultery against their God, and it is graphic. Enough to make you blush a little bit sometimes. And then, of course, you get into the story of Jesus. Jesus is um, talking to the woman at the well who's had five husbands, and the one she's with now isn't even her husband. You get the, the woman who's caught in adultery and brought to Jesus, caught in the very act. You skip all the way to the end, and you get to the, the whore of Babylon and Revelation. And whether it's metaphorical or literal, sexual misconduct is a thread from beginning of Scripture to the end. That, that God's design for those things is absolutely royally screwed up. And I think part of it is because human beings, um, even before the fall, were created with a sexual nature. And so what Satan likes to do is take something that God has created as good and just twist it. And so it's no surprise that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that in a place like Corinth, which I know Chris said one of the cities it can be compared to is Las Vegas, um, it's no surprise that we get a situation where someone might be thinking what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. When you live in a place like that, it's probably hard for the morality of the people who are regularly coming to visit, that morality rubs off on the people who live there. And so we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be there um, the whole time here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up. Uh, if you have a Bible app, I'd encourage you to open that up. Um, I'll be using the ESV, so if you have an app that has multiple translations and you want to follow along word for word, I'll be in the English Standard Version um, if you like a different one and be able to compare and contrast as we go, good on you. That's cool too. Um, whatever your fancy happens to be. But I will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And away we go. <laughs> it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant? Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We'll stop there for now. Uh, you know, it, he kind of addresses the specific issue here. And he says, look, even people without a Christian moral compass, even people outside of the kingdom of God, look at this and they say, that's not okay. And you guys are arrogant about it? Which even fits into the attitude that we've had kind of all along in 1 Corinthians so far, and we'll carry on through the rest of the letter, that they're, they're arrogant, they're prideful. They're saying, we're going to do whatever we want because, I mean, Paul probably isn't going to come anyway. And so they're arrogant about this. They are proud to have this person as one of theirs. It seems like this is maybe a similar attitude toward the grace of God that we see in Romans chapter 6, which starts out with, should, I keep on, should we keep on sinning so grace may increase? The answer to that is, uh, no. <laughs> okay, so absolutely not. May it never be. And yet the question points to an attitude that they had an attitude that seems to be shared by the Corinthians as well. That if I, can, if I sin more, then I get more grace, right? 
And Jesus even said, he who is forgiven much loves much. So if I sin more, then I can love him more because I'll be forgiven more. Isn't the human ability of logic just incredible? <laughs> like we can, we can rationalize all sorts of things and make it sound biblical even to say, well, I can love God more if I sin more and get forgiven more, more grace. It's wonderful. It's a perfect system, right? And yet both there, he said, well, there he says, you know, may it never be. And here he says, uh, no, there's a better response. There's a more appropriate response than being arrogant about it, being prideful in your sinfulness. He says to mourn over it and to get it out of the body. A few years ago, my mom uh, had, a, um, had a, a mass in, her, in the lining of her colon that needed to be removed. Um, it was cancerous. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where when, when we found that out, it wasn't like, we weren't excited. I wasn't excited to put that into my medical family, medical history, that cancer is now in my family, okay? Uh, that wasn't an exciting thing. We weren't arrogant about it. We weren't saying, hey, guys, guess what? I know it's usually a bad thing for everybody else, but for us, this is great. How silly, right? That would be an inappropriate response to something that can spread through the body and kill it. And yet... In dealing with something that can spread through the body and kill it, the Corinthian church was arrogant. They were saying, look at us. Look how good, look how we are. We're so full of grace. We've even got this sketchy dude. Okay, we're, we're so full of grace here. Paul says the appropriate response is to mourn over it. When you hear that, that C word, cancer, there's a heaviness, there's a weight to that when it's someone that you love or when it's you yourself. There's a, there's a weight to that news. And we should kind of have that same sort of weight when, talk, when we approach the S word, sin. That there's a, there's a heaviness. There's a weight to that that should cause us to mourn and to want it gone. He goes on um, to say he's absent in body but present in spirit. Uh, and he says, I've already pronounced judgment on this. Paul's mind is already made up. He doesn't have to come visit to say, you need to get this out. You need to get this gone. He's with them in spirit as they deal with this difficult situation. They don't need to wait for him. It needs dealt with, and it needs dealt with right now. He goes on to say, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So I... As they're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, um, I, I don't think when he says, um, and my spirit is present, I don't think he means anything like weird mystical stuff. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys saw the, um, the newer Star Wars movies where like Luke's on some like random planet somewhere and yet like he's showing up in this, uh, on this other planet and they're like interacting with him like he's there and then, oh, found out he's on a different planet. Crazy. Um, that's not... It's not like some kind of weird hologram or anything like that. I think what he means in this is that um, his authority is behind their actions. That as you deal with this, the power of the Lord Jesus is with you. And the words of one who has been deputized by Jesus as an apostle is backing up what you guys need to do. I think he's, 
He's saying, look, I'm, I'm with you on this. I'm behind you on this. You have apostolic authority behind you to get rid of this person and deal with it finally. And we'll get to a little bit more of that here in just a minute. Uh, I, I do want to touch briefly on, this, uh, on, on verse 5 here, the idea of delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Um, you can read a lot of books about what that means exactly, um, but to put it as plainly and simple as, uh, as we can get, it, it is a way of talking about the removal from the church. Uh, the, this person is to be removed from, from the church because the church is God's kingdom. So if you were to deliver this person out of the church, you're delivering him out of God's kingdom into the world, which would be the domain of Satan. And so you're delivering him back into that. When he's been, um, but the, the thing that makes this effective is that in that day and time, when you become a Christian, you cut ties with the world. You've burned those bridges. And you join the church. You join a new family. You join a new kingdom. And so when you've already burned those bridges, to then be removed from that, all of a sudden, in a world of largely codependent people, you're on your own. Life is now very, very hard. And the whole point of this is that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The whole reason for this, for this handing over is to save this person. This is to lead to their salvation. And so from verses 1 through 5, we get an appropriate response. An appropriate response is not arrogance in, in either direction. Not arrogance saying, well, I may do X, Y, Z, but I didn't do that. So I'm at least better off than that guy. Okay? That kind of arrogance is not appropriate. But neither is the kind of arrogance of saying, like, check this out. We've got, we got this guy, and he's doing this being proud of the sin itself. Okay? Arrogance is not, is not an appropriate response, but neither is even anger. In fact, God's response is not usually, first, anger. Did you know that uh, the first time that God is said to become angry isn't until Moses at the burning bush? You don't get that till Exodus. Which means all, all that stuff we just, uh, that I went through at the beginning, all that stuff from Genesis, doesn't say God gets angry. Even the flood, God's response is that he's sad. It breaks his heart. It says that the, the hearts of people were only evil all the time. That, that was their heart. That was their, their thoughts and their intentions. Only evil all the time. And God is grieved because of it. Now, it doesn't mean there wasn't any anger there at all, but what it does mean is that the primary response, at least the response that the biblical authors wanted us to see, is God's grief over sin, God's mourning over sin. And if we are people who are growing to have a heart more and more like Jesus, arrogance and anger probably don't really have a good place in that. The appropriate response is mourning and grief. 
And the appropriate goal is going to be restoring that person. So the whole reason that they, they get removed is so that they can come back in again. Because if you let someone uh, be in the kingdom of God, when they're acting like they're in the kingdom of this world, they're never going to stop acting like they're in the kingdom of this world. Which then you get some of those parables about separating wheat and chaff in the end, time, end days and things like that, where it doesn't end well for people who are pretending to be in the kingdom of God. And so if they're pretending to be in the kingdom of God, you remove them so they can realize, oh, maybe I should start acting like I'm in the kingdom of God. And they can... They can act that. There's a restoration of the person in sin to a right, a right kind of godly behavior. And also a, a cleansing of, of God's people, which is what the, the next section kind of touches on. So, um, so, so far, I hope anyway, that um, the direct application of someone sleeping with their stepmom, uh, hopefully that doesn't apply to anybody in here. But if it does, like, stop it, okay? Just, okay, just stop it if that's you. <laughs> okay, well, just, that's all that needs to be said on that part, okay? Um, hopefully that doesn't apply to most of us directly. But what does apply is the next section where he, he goes to a more widespread problem even than that. After addressing the issue specifically with the person and how to deal with that, Paul now turns to address the rest of the church. Um, and so he, he goes on in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexually, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay. It's not good to be proud of sin, guys. Just, just plain and simple. It's not good to be boasting about sin. This flippant and even prideful attitude towards sin leads to more sin. This attitude spreads into the life of other believers. So, well, if he can do this, then surely I can get away with this because that's not as bad as that. So I can go ahead and do this stuff, because, I mean, they're not doing anything about this. Or maybe it's, well, if he can do that, well, what happens if I take it a whole other step and do this? And we can start getting the one-uppers up in here. Well, yeah, you, you sin that way. Well, check out how I sinned. And there's this, this arrogance there. This boasting. Your boasting is not good. We should not be prideful about sin. We should not be saying, well, that's, you know, I'm just this way. I'm always, I'm always judgmental. I'm just a gossip, I know. Well, then stop it, you know? Like, <laughs> this, this attitude of, well, yeah, I know I'm this way. Or that, that pridefulness of like, yeah, 
I really let people have it. That doesn't fit. You're boasting. If you boast in your sin, it is not good. Your boasting is not good. And it has an effect on more than just you. So it says to cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just like he does in the rest of the letter, Paul brings it back to the gospel, to the good news of Christ's finished work. I think that's so important that he does that over and over again. He keeps coming back and saying, remember what Christ has done for you and remember who you are. At the very beginning of the letter, he, he writes it, he addresses it to the saints in Corinth. Saints meaning holy ones. And then you read the letter and we're like, are you, are you writing to the same people that I think you're writing to? Because like, they don't seem very saintly. And yet he addresses it to the holy ones in Corinth. The saints. And he says here, you are really unleavened without sin. Leavening and yeast, that kind of a picture is a, is a very classic Jewish, Jewish way of, of talking about sin. It's a very classic Jewish metaphor for sin, is this idea of leavening and bread. He says to get rid of that, and he says you really are unleavened. You really are holy and pure. So start acting like it. He says, this is who you are. This is your identity in Christ Jesus. And I think that's probably, for us, a pretty good thing to remember. Um, If we're talking to somebody about sin in their life, or we're talking even to ourselves about sin in our own lives, you preach the gospel to yourself. You say, look, you've died to sin. Why do you keep living in it? Self? (laughs) Friend? If you've died to sin, why do you keep living in it? Christ has been sacrificed. You really are unleavened. So therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, the uh, malice and evil, they contradict the perfect, unblemished nature of Jesus. Malice and evil, it doesn't even make sense to try to put that together with the kingdom of God. But what does? Sincerity and truth. Those things match. Those things make sense with the kingdom of God, with Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Those things seem to fit. Malice and evil need to be gotten rid of. He goes on to say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So apparently Paul has written them already about this subject. And uh, this actually is kind of comforting to me because it goes to show that we are not the first ones Um, we're not the first ones to know what we need to do and um, be too scared to do it. If you've ever had that moment where you're like, I really know I need to talk to this person about such and such, but you know what? Maybe some, I'm sure someone else has probably already said something, so I'm just going to leave it alone. You're not the first person to do that. In fact, this entire church was doing that. Paul had told them not to associate with sexually immoral people, and yet they're bragging about their sexual immorality instead. Even after you've been taught the right thing, it can still be really hard and scary to carry it out, which is part of why Paul says, look, my authority is behind you. My spirit is with you in this. 
I've got your back. Get him out. But he, he says not to associate with them. There's this break in fellowship. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you go to Walmart, you'll see like on their little blue vest. Do they still? I don't remember if they have the blue vest still. But they've got the, you know, it says that they're a, an associate, a sales associate or something. Meaning they are, they're associated with the, the group. They work for Walmart. So they've got Walmart on them. It says they're an associate. Now, if they break the moral code of Walmart, say they're shoplifting, guess who they don't get to be associated with anymore? Walmart. You break the moral code of the association, you're out. Okay? And that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, look, don't associate with these people because then it makes it seem like this is okay. If you let people continue stealing from your store and there's no repercussions for it, then you're not going to have much merchandise left for very long. We don't associate with sexually, you don't associate with sexually immoral people. But he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. He clarifies, look, I'm not talking about worldly people here. I'm not talking about people that you don't know. I'm not talking about people in Hollywood. I'm not talking about people in Washington, D.C. I'm not talking about people a long ways away that you see on the news. We're not talking about those people. You're not associating with them anyway. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. He says, look, these things uh, outside of the church, they just make sense. Okay, I know our... our, uh, our country had a lot of uh, Judeo-Christian values undergirding a lot of our, our culture. And as we move away from that, it is a sorrowful thing to see um, those things moving away from it. But at the same time, it shouldn't surprise us when people who aren't Christians don't act like Christians. What should shock us is when people who are saying they're a brother saying they're a Christian, when they're not behaving like Christians, Paul says, now we've got a problem. Now this is a big deal. And notice it's not exclusively a sexual sin issue. He has widened the range of what he's talking about here. It's no longer just sexual sin. Sometimes we can act like that's really the only thing there is. And even, even then we might act just like just a, a certain, some certain specific sexual sins are a big deal. Other kinds may, may get a pass. I've heard people say, you know, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first, right? Except that, you know, she's not a car, dude. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> and the reality is, though, is that we, there are some things that we think of, like even in the Corinthians here, okay, they saw a, the, the wider culture looks at a man sleeping with a stepmom and says, that's gross, that's bad. But these other things aren't that big of a deal. And the easy thing would be to say, okay, well, we're going to go along with that and say, okay, that one's still bad because we think it's kind of gross. But these ones we don't think are as gross. They're not as immediately disgusting to me. And so therefore, like, these ones aren't as big of a deal. Instead, Paul uses the all-encompassing term, porneia, to, to say, no, 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 it's all of this sexual immorality. 
anything outside of God's design, it's got to be dealt with. And then he, he goes on and, and adds several more categories, not an exhaustive list by any means, but he covers some of the main things that may have been issues for the Corinthian Christians. And he says not to even eat with these so-called brothers. And we'll see some more. There are other lists. Okay, we'll see one in the next chapter. I don't know where Chris is going to go next week, but um, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll get to hear a whole other list of sinful people. It'd be great. Uh, but Galatians chapter 5, right before the fruit of the Spirit, you've got the deeds of the flesh. Um, there's several lists throughout the New Testament, and they're, for the most part, kind of different. They've got different things on them, and I think it's because, especially here, these are things that the Corinthians were, were probably needing to be directly mentioned. He says, don't even eat with these so-called brothers. Don't share table fellowship with them. Eating with someone was a sign that, that this, is, this is one of my people, right? This is one of my guys, okay? That's why Jesus was criticized for eating with sinners and tax collectors because, because that's what that was communicating, that I approve of these people where the religious leaders would think that those people were unapprovable. And in this case, Paul's saying, don't, don't eat with these people because you're showing that these are, one of, these are one of my people. I approve of this guy and what he's doing, how he's living, yeah. But he says, for, but what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And a lot of times we, we get this backward because it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to judge people that you're not friends with. It's a lot easier to watch the news and say, man, Another dirt ball in Washington, okay? Or even, even you know, listening to um, Christian news outlets. Um, man, there's always some story about um, such and such pastor somewhere doing something sketchy with someone. And it just it breaks your heart. But it's really easy to be outraged about that and type something on your computer onto social media, and that's the end of it. It doesn't do any good. There's no restoration for the person, and it's not really getting anything out of the body of Christ. It's not fitting what we're doing. And yet that's, that's easy to be a keyboard warrior. It's a lot harder to have a difficult conversation with someone. Because you don't know how it's going to go. They might respond really badly. I've been in one of those conversations. It didn't go as we thought it would. And uh, it wasn't fun. It was necessary. We had a hard conversation. He says, isn't those inside the church, and this whole idea of church discipline is connected very tightly with the idea of discipleship, coming from the same kind of word here. And ideally, most of our discipline happens in the realm of discipleship rather than having to get to the point where, where he's talking about, where we just have, we have the conversations and we remind someone, hey, this isn't who you are anymore. A lot of times, that's all it would really take. It says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. God's going to handle it on the outside. But the church needs to take care of business on the inside. This purge the evil person from among you is repeated. Uh, I don't, if you have notes in your Bible, like references and stuff, um, I didn't actually find one in my Bible for this, even though it was in quotes and all caps like it normally is when it, uh, 
is dealing with the Old Testament stuff. But part of the reason, I guess, was because this is quoting like six times in the book of Deuteronomy. There's like a whole bunch of quotes in Deuteronomy where they say, purge the evil person from among you. Because it's super important that you don't have sin in the camp. And we see that handled, um, I won't go into the whole story, but Achan, as they go into, um, into Jericho, Achan sins and the whole, the whole nation of Israel pays for it. And so, uh, we kind of, well, let me finish up with just uh, kind of three things here. One, again, the appropriate response to sin, whether it's in yourself or in someone else, is never arrogance, but it is a grief and mourning. That we mourn over it. We grieve over sin in the life of a Christian because it doesn't belong there. And the appropriate goal in this, number two, is is the restoration of the person. That's the goal of this. And we actually find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we find out that they achieved their goal. He comes back and Paul says, welcome him back with open arms. Comfort him. Bring him back into the church. The restoration of the person is, is the primary it's the primary goal here, but a secondary goal is the cleansing of the church and the reputation of Christ, which is kind of the third thing, which is the effects of sin in the church. We talked already about the fact that it allows people to kind of escalate things, where sin leads to more sin. And so we have to, we have to clean it out. But also the reputation of Jesus is on the line. Okay, the, the, out, the world outside is looking at the church and saying that's what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, I heard a guy speak several years ago, and uh, he told a story about a trip he took to Miami. He was uh, speaking at some conference down there or something, and, um, and he had this, he had basically one interaction with someone from Miami. It was his limo driver. He said he had a great conversation with him. It was a great experience, all this. And so he kind of finished up by saying, yeah, like, I'd love to go back to Miami because the people in Miami are great. Except he didn't meet people from Miami, he met person from Miami. And based on that interaction, he said, people from Miami are great. Which should cause us to pause and realize that if someone knows that you are a Christian, what is it that they believe about Christ and what it means to follow him? What, what are they getting out of that? Because if they, if they know you as being the crass, coarse person, they might look at you and say, well, pff, I'm a better person than they are, so why do I need to bother going to church? If that's what Jesus, or even if that's what Jesus does to a person, makes them like that, no thanks. The reputation of Jesus is on the line here, which is why, which is part of why they, they discipline and remove this person to make a public statement and say, look, this behavior is not representative of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something very different. Now, in, um, in all of this, I want to make one um, big caveat here. As we've talked about these things, this is not talking about the, the struggle with sin that we all have. Okay, this is not talking about the struggle with sin. This is the prideful, like, look at me, I am like this. Look how sinful I am. Like, that's the attitude that's being talked about here, is this prideful, unrepentant sin. And so this morning, I would, 
uh, I would just ask you to consider that. Is that it doesn't have to be sleeping with your stepmom. It can be any number of things. Or we can be um, just so, we can be proud of this sinful piece of who we are. So I'd encourage you to, to examine that in yourself. But not only that, I would, I would encourage you um, to, to speak the gospel to yourself and to others. If you see someone in sin, whether it's yourself or someone else, take it back to the gospel. Yeah, I, heard, I read, um, I think it was a Methodist guy a while back talking about like, bring everything, basically the whole Christian life, bring it back to your baptism. Because at the end of the, that summarizes it. The death, burial, and resurrection. We are buried with Christ. That person is dead, this new life. And you bring it all back to your baptism and say, look, you are a baptized Christian. That person's supposed to be dead. Quit playing with the decaying stack of bones. That person's supposed to be gone. You're a new creation now. You preach the gospel to yourself or to someone else. And as we, as we do this, we can restore a person to fellowship, restore this person into right relationship with, with the community of Christ, but also with God. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we encourage people to, to live out of that grace and to move forward in the grace of God, that as we do that, that we will be able to represent Christ in a way that is pure and clean and that will be attractive to, to people outside the church as well. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the chance we have to be together this morning. And I pray that... Uh, as we look at this, I pray that we would, we would never act pridefully towards someone else's sin, but that instead we would, we would behave with grace, that we, would, that we would act out of love and concern for that person, even if it's ourselves. Father, I pray that um, as, we, as we seek to love others, that you would give us boldness and strength to have hard conversations I pray that you would give each of us, as we probably all need to receive a hard conversation from time to time, I pray that you would help us to receive it well. God, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.